You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Amen. All right, and I'm Jane Menendez. Oh, I'm sorry. And, this is Jane oh, no. Menendez, uh, my, my wife of 40 years uh, and parent of uh, mother of four children and seven grandchildren and lover of the Lord. There you go. All right. Um, Cameron asked us to speak to some things that shaped us as parents, and I think we are the, we are the grandparents in the room. Um, so we are just kind of looking back at the, those things that were kind of formative for us as parents. And um, years ago, we heard a metaphor uh, for parenting uh, that we really adopted and used as our own, and that metaphor is this, that our job as parents is to pack our children's suitcase so that when they leave us, they will be equipped for life's journey. And if you think about it, that's kind of what we do as parents. We are busy um, kind of tucking all sorts of things into our children's suitcase. Uh, it could be a good education, could be a love of sports, appreciation of the arts, um, manners, how to shake hands and look at somebody in the eye, um, to give them kind of social and leadership skills. And we do this so that when they go out, when they leave us, that life will go well for them. That's what we want for our children. And I think we're all very intentional um, about our children's education, about their extracurricular activities, whether they're sports or whatever, um, community service. We're really intentional about all of this. And we get so busy trying to fit it all in um, that we can lose focus on the thing that's really important to pack in their suitcase, um, and that is faith. Mm-hmm. When our children go out in the world, they need the strength, the comfort, and the power of a strong faith. I mean, can you imagine the sorrow of watching your child as an adult Facing a crisis, um, whether it's in their marriage, whether it's in their career, their health, um, and going through their metaphorical suitcase and looking for something that's packed in there that will help and come up empty. And I don't think any of us want that um, for our children. We want them to be equipped for really the, the important things in life. Um, so Don and I got very intentional about packing our children's suitcase, trying not to let the busyness of life distract us from seizing any moment we could to kind of slip faith um, into their suitcase. And a verse that we went back to time and time again, it's one that you have before you, is from Deuteronomy, and it's the Lord speaking, but he's speaking through Moses. And he says these words, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Pretty much 24-7. Um, let me ask you a question. To whom is Moses speaking? Moses. 
The nation of Israel. Yeah, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to his people. And it's actually a timeless, universal message. He's speaking to all his people. And what is his first instruction? To hear. Yes. Um, It is to hear. And this hearing is not in one ear and out the other ear. This is an intentional, active thinking, weighing, hearing um, that spurs us to action. In the Hebrew, this is a call to hear with attention, to obey and accept what is heard. Um, and we are to hear God through his word. And, you know, I'm always thinking, okay, why? And so why are we to hear? And you really have to back up um, to verse 3, which is also on your handout. It says, Hear, again, that admonition to hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Again, that connection between hearing God's word and doing, that it may go well with you, that your life may go well. And I think that's why we are so busy putting all these things in our children's suitcases. Um, So life will go well for them. And so scripture here is telling us that the most important thing we can do if we want life to go well for ourselves and our children is to first be hearers of the word, to work on our own relationship with the Lord. And we can't let that priority be crowded out by life's distractions, although that's very easy for that to have happen. So the first instruction is to hear. What's the second instruction? To love, to love God. And I don't know about you, but this used to kind of not bother me, but puzzle me um, that we are commanded to love God. Um, That's the first and great commandment. And I've always wondered, okay, why isn't it that we fear the Lord or trust the Lord or even praise the Lord? All of that seemed easier to me. Um, But how do I conjure up a love for God? Um, I didn't really know the answer to that. Um, and we'll actually get back to that later in the, in the talk. But how do we actually love God? That's the second instruction. What's the third instruction? Teach. teach. That we will teach. These words will be on your heart and you shall teach them to your children. And that's you shall teach. Um, that's not the Sunday school teachers will teach. That's not... Uh, Dean Pearson will teach. That's us as parents. We are the primary <coughs> teachers. Um, we don't have to be experts, uh, but we do need to be intentional about it. And as you look at these verses from Deuteronomy, there's a very deliberate proper order. It's first to hear, then to love, then to teach. And so kind of first things first, I'm going to talk about hearing because this was a very important step for me. Um, neither Don or I grew up in a home where we really heard the word of the Lord. Um, we had no real understanding of the Bible, of faith, of Jesus. Um, what I did have was kind of a mis- mishmash of morality, <coughs> civics, manners, with a few Bible stories kind of sprinkled in. Um, and I really thought the Bible 
was just a bunch of stories about different people. Story about Adam, story about Noah, Moses, uh, David, Jesus. But I had no idea that all these stories were connected to one another and that they were actually telling not separate stories but one big story and that this one big story could give strength and comfort and power to my own life and to that of my children. And so what I want to do is kind of look at this one big story of redemption um, in a fairly quick manner. Um, If you open the Bible and you go back to Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, we see that God created the world and everything in it. He created us male and female, and it was very good. And then in Genesis 3, we learn that something went horribly wrong. Um, We fell for a lie that um, we could be like God. And as Michael Weeks talked in the sermon, that we could be in control. Um, We didn't trust God. And we rebelled against him and disobeyed. And that at that point, selfishness, enmity, pain, sorrow, and death entered our world. But in the same chapter, in Genesis 3, while Adam and Eve are hiding and trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, um, God comes walking in the cool of the garden and he calls to Adam and he asks Adam a question. So you may remember what question God asked Adam. Where are you? God is God. He asks a question. He's usually not looking for information. (laughs) Um, He's trying to make Adam think, where am I? You know, I used to be, I used to have dominion over this garden. I used to be naked and not ashamed. I used to be in relationship with the Lord. And now I'm naked. I'm fearful. I'm hiding from God. I'm, I'm lost. And God is trying to really make Adam think of where he has fallen. And it's a call of repentance. But it's also a call of grace. Because it's not man who comes after God. It's God who comes after man. Um, God could have let what was lost stay lost and just start it over. But he doesn't. And God pursues us. And he comes after us wherever we're hiding. And that was true then, and that's true now. I mean, God's pursuit of his people is really the dominant thing. Um, Excuse me. I did not dress well for the take, so I had to improvise. Um, This God's pursuit of mankind is really a dominant theme in this whole story of of God's plan of redemption. Because in that same chapter, Genesis 3, God makes a promise, kind of a whisper of a promise, that's repeated throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, that he would send someone born of a woman, born of the seed of a woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would undo what had just happened, who would right what had gone wrong. And God's plan involved creating a nation that would be set apart, 
um, a nation that would be a light to the rest of the world. And from this nation would come the deliverer. And God began this nation by calling one man. Who's that? Abraham. Abraham. Um, And God made four promises to Abraham. One, I will bless you and you will be a great nation. Two, your descendants will outnumber the stars. Three, all nations will be blessed by you. And four, I will give you a specific land that's north to the Euphrates River, south to the um, land of Egypt, west to the Mediterranean Sea, and east to the desert. A very particular land that's actually, if you think about it geographically, is in the crossroads of the world. Because you have three great continents, three great civilizations, from whom three great civilizations come. You have Egypt to the south, Asia to the east, and Europe to the west. And God put his people right in the middle. Um, So Abraham and Sarah have this promise that they're going to have descendants that outnumber the stars. And they wait, 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 and they have one son, and that's Isaac. And the story and the promise continue through Isaac. Isaac has two, has twin boys. Uh, Esau's the firstborn, but Jacob is born holding on to his brother's heel. And he will ultimately trip up his brother, and he will take the blessing. He will take the birthright. And the story and the promise can continue through Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And Jacob or Israel has 12 sons, has a favorite son named Joseph. Joseph, uh, the, the favoritism of Joseph causes jealousy among the brothers. Shocked about that. Um, they end up selling Joseph into slavery into Egypt. And Joseph finds favor, interprets a dream, warns of a coming famine, and is put in charge of all the storehouses in Egypt. And because of his stewardship, Egypt manages the famine. Back in the promised land with Jacob or Israel and the rest of the sons, things are not so good. They go to Egypt looking for food. And in so doing, they get reunited with their brother Joseph. And Jacob or Israel moves his whole family into Egypt. And so the 12 sons are there. They're there for 430 years. In that time, they go from being the family of Israel with 12 sons to being the nation of Israel with 12 tribes. And they go from being favored citizens to slaves. And they cry out to the Lord for deliverance because their slavery is hard. And God raises up Moses. Um, And he appears before Moses in the burning bush. And he says, and this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And I have heard their cry. And I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them back to this land that I promised, this land flowing with milk and honey that I promised to Abraham so many years ago. And I love that because it just reinforces that our God is a God who sees us, who hears us, who knows us, and has come down to deliver us. And it foreshadows where this story is ultimately going. 
Um, but Moses, he raises up Moses, and the Exodus is kind of the seminal story of the Old Testament. It is God coming after his people, raising up a deliverer in Moses to bring them out of bondage and lead them into the promised land. And Passover kind of marks the beginning um, of the Exodus. And if you remember that, death passes over um, wherever there is door lentils that are covered with blood. And again, that points forward to where this story is going. And God, through Moses, leads the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt um, back to the promised land. And they're in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's during this time that they're fed with manna, that they're given the Ten Commandments, that they're given the instructions to build the ark and the tabernacle so God can dwell in the midst of them like he did in in Eden. Um, And this is where they learn the sacrificial system, which, again, always kind of sounded barbaric to me because what that entailed was taking an innocent animal and killing it in the place of the, the person. And the priest would put his hand on the head of the animal. And the people of Israel kind of understood that their guilt and their sin was being transferred to this animal. And again, something that points forward to where this story is going. Um, The end of Moses' life, um, Moses tells the people of Israel that God will raise up for you another prophet like me. From among your brothers, and to him you shall heed. So you get this again, whisper of a promise of another deliverer is coming. It's actually Joshua who leads them back into the land, promised to Abraham. Joshua means God saved, same root as Jesus. Um, and they go into the promised land and they settle it tribe by tribe. After Joshua dies, then they're, they're ruled by a series of judges. But all the other nations have kings, so they want a king. And they keep asking God for a king. And he says, you don't want a king. He's just going to tax you. He's going to do all sorts of things you don't want. They say, we want a king. God raises up King Saul. King Saul is followed by King David. Um, And it's actually King David. It's under him, and he was kind of the warrior king where they fully conquered and settled in this land that was originally promised to Abraham. Um, David was called a man after God's own heart. Wasn't a perfect man, um, but he loved the Lord. And he wrote many of the Psalms that point forward to a righteous king that is coming. Um, His kingdom has no end. People of Israel kind of full flower under David's son, King Solomon. Uh, it's a time of peace, economic and cultural flourishing. They build the temple. They kind of move the function of the tabernacle into the temple in Jerusalem. And this was their bright and shining moment. And then Solomon dies. Uh, his sons all vie for the who should be king. And the tribes in the north break away. And they established their own kingdom with their own kings and their own systems of worship. And the northern kingdom is known as by the name of Israel. And the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is and where the temple is, is known as Judah. So you've got a divided kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. 
And a divided kingdom is never as strong as a united kingdom. So they started to get enemies coming in. And at first it was the Assyrians from the east and the north who came in, and they conquered the entire northern kingdom, surrounded Jerusalem, but never were able to conquer Jerusalem. And their power began to wane. And if you remember your world history, Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, came in. He conquered what used to be the Assyrian um, Empire. And he conquered, he sacked and conquered Jerusalem. Destroyed the temple. Took all the wealth and all the skilled people in Judah back in exile back into Babylon. Um which is where they stayed for 70 to 80 years. Um, in time, the Persians rise up, and um, God again comes after his people. Uh, he calls his servant Cyrus, who's a Persian king, and it's under Cyrus that the Persians let the Judaites or the Jews go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple walls and rebuild the temple. And so they, they, they're back in the land, but the temple is a shadow of what it was before, a shadow of Solomon's temple. Their prosperity, they're under you know, foreign rule. <coughs> After the Persians comes Alexander the Great. He conquers that area. And you, know, you think of how much biblical life was influenced by the Greeks because the language of the Bible is in Greek. Um, that's the, the, the Greek influence was very strong. Then after the Greeks come the Romans. Um, they supplant the Greek Empire, and again, the Promised Land is under the rule and authority of another. And the Jews, the people of Judah, are living in an occupied land. And it is in this time and place when God himself comes um, after his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And I loved how Michael Weeks, and I, I want to go back and hear it again, he talked about the whole backdrop of Jesus' crucifixion. There was the symphony of Old Testament prophets and figures that were playing in the background. And I thought that was a beautiful way to say that because Jesus came, you know, you think, why didn't Jesus come in Genesis 5? You know, why did we need these thousands of years of history? and preparation but we needed that so we would have a context to really understand when Jesus came what he came to do Um, because when Jesus came they knew that he was the Messiah that he was the Christ the one that they had been expecting for all these years he was the one that Moses was talking about the new deliverer he was the one that David was talking about the righteous king. He was the Christ. And when he said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the son of God. I mean, Peter, Peter knew. And um, so Jesus was the Christ. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's David's greater son whose kingdom will have no end. He's the greater Moses who will deliver us from a deeper bondage than we can imagine. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Um, He's the one who forgives all your iniquities, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, 
crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good. He is the full, perfect, and sufficient satisfaction. Uh, I'm sorry, full, full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. He was the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He's the one who undoes death. Um, He is the one born of the seed of a woman who crushes the head of the serpent. And we actually have a stained glass window up in the church. It's a very small one that shows Jesus coming out of the tomb, stepping on the head of the serpent, going all the way back to Genesis 3. Um, And he's the one who comes after us and loves us with a never-stopping, always-and-forever love. And I think the really cool thing is that he lets us be parents because I think we get a tiny glimpse of God's love for us and the love that we have for our children. We love them not because they're the best athlete or the best scholar. We love them simply because they're ours. And that's how God loves us that he loves us because we're his, bought with the price of his blood. Um, Have you ever lost a child in a store or an amusement park? Anybody? (laughs) Yeah. We did. We lost our daughter at Disney World. (laughs) If there's a good good place to lose your child, that's it, because they have lots of resources. But I will tell you, for the 12 minutes that she was lost, we didn't, the whole rest of the world for us stopped. We didn't think about anything. We didn't stop to eat. We didn't do it. We were so laser focused on where's our child. And I think that gives us a glimpse into God's heart when he comes after Adam in the garden going, where are you? That God comes after what was lost. And I love how Jesus tells the three parables of the lost coin, how the lady tears her house apart looking for it, Uh, the lost sheep, how the shepherd goes after the sheep, and the lost son, because he really does give us a glimpse into God's heart. Um, And here's the thing. As we hear about God's love for us, A love for God wells up in our hearts. It's not a love that we have to conjure up. It's a love that just happens. We love because he first loved us. And it took me a while to really understand that. But the more I read, the more I heard, the more I genuinely loved the Lord for who he was and how fully and completely he had loved me. Um, it's not a conjured up love. It's not a grit your teeth love. It's an all encompassing love that just comes out of your heart. So when we hear God's word, it does a number on our heart. And then it's out of this full heart that we really begin to see all of life through the lens of God's word. And God's word becomes the grid out of which we teach our children. Um, 
we and it, it's you know I don't think we ever sat down and I have a son here in the audience and he can he can keep me honest. We didn't have so many times where we were sit down formally teaching our children. It was just kind of in the ebb and flow of the day when it would come up, trying to teach how to repent, how to how to how to um, ask for forgiveness, or how to forgive. Um, how to face temptation. Um, I think, you know, just something I've done for myself is when I say the Lord's Prayer, you know, lead me not into temptation, I start thinking, okay, where am I going to be tempted today? And let me bring those to mind so I can be armed against temptation. Uh, we want to teach our children not to set their things on se- things that are seen, but things that are unseen, to give them a, a, a bigger perspective than the troubles of the day. And we want to teach them where their true significance lies. So when we, and we want them to hear for themselves how to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's Word. Um, We all want life to go well for our children. Um, And that doesn't mean they're going to have a trouble free life. But it does mean when they're going through their metaphorical suitcase, when life throws them a curveball, they have something to hold on to, um, something that will help them cope with the vagaries of life. (coughs) Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. And what Don and I did is mainly put ourselves in a posture of hearing. We were in church every Sunday to hear the Word preached and taught. Um, we were in small groups where we would study God's Word together. And we both carved out time to be in God's Word, you know, just on our own. Um, so we could, um, so we could be fed. Um, I will tell you the biggest enemy is time. The thought that I'm too busy today, or I need to sleep today on a Sunday morning. Um, but I'll have more time tomorrow. It's a lie. I mean, I'm, I don't want to tell you how old I am. I'm, 60, I'm 63 years old, and I keep thinking, someday I'll have time. But it hadn't happened yet. And it's so easy to kick it down the road. And life will, you will blink and your children will be grown. You'll have grandchildren and you'll think, where did the time go? And we can get so busy. And busy, if you think about it, stands for being under Satan's yoke. Um, We can be so busy um, that we don't take time. And everybody in here is busy. Everybody's juggling a lot. But you really can't let the urgent drive out the important. Time spent at Jesus' feet is the one thing needful. Um, And I've got a quote on your handout um, that's really old English, but I love it. And it's it's from the 1600s, a Puritan pastor who considered it unthinkable that a child of God would be unable to find the time. They even had this problem in the 1600s. So you, can, you know this goes back a long way. Um, he 
that a child of God would be unable to find the time to read the book in which God has communicated his love and his grace. And he writes, could God find time, could God find heart and time to pen this love letter to, to thee and thou find none to read it or peruse it? The sick man, no time to look on his physician's prescription. The condemned malefactor, no time to look on his prince's letter of grace, wherein a pardon is signed. And I like that for a couple of reasons. One, because time is, having time has always been an enemy. Um, it's true today, but you have to, you make time for what's important. Um, and I can't think of anything more important for our own lives and that of our children um, than making time to really um, put yourself in a posture to hear. So, D.Y., what will you add to this? I'll add it to thing number one, uh, and we communicate very differently, James and I. I'm direct and not nearly as deep. So for, That's not true. So for me, this can only be one two things what it claims to be, or something else. And something else could be a thousand other things. But it's binary in my mind. It claims to be God's revealed word to us about who he is and who we are. And I think the challenge that I want to make to young men and women everywhere is make that decision for yourself. Don't kick that decision down the road. Because here's the deal. If it's one of the thousand other things, then you can do with it as you may. If it is what it claims to be, if it's God's revelation to man about himself and about us, we really only have one choice. Look into it or deny it. And not making a choice is a choice. Mm. And everything else in life. So that's the one thing I have to say. The other thing I have to say, and I've never done this in front of a group, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and pray because there's somebody in this room that's not made that decision and maybe the Holy Spirit of God has worked on your heart today where today's the time to make that decision. I don't know that, but God does. So I would ask each of y'all, no peeking, close your eyes. <laughs> close your eyes and and uh, if you'd like to say this prayer along with me, um, I would ask you to do that. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, in your uh, dominion and uh, your sovereignty over all things, including today and where we are and at this point in time uh, in each of our individual lives. Uh, Lord, you have us here in this room today. So, Lord Jesus, um, I just pray that for too long, uh, someone in this room has kept you out of their lives. Father, that, uh, that they know that they are a sinner in need of salvation and that they can't save themselves. Father, so if they would pray along with me, Lord God, I would no longer close this door when I hear you knocking. By faith, Lord, I gracefully receive your gift of salvation into my life. I am ready, Father, to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. I believe that you are the Son of God and that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead on the third day and that you sit now at the right hand of God the Father, mediating on behalf of me and everyone in this room. Thank you, Lord, for bearing my sins and for giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe that your words are true. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. 
and be my Savior forever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.